Murder? Mayhem? Mormons? Why not? You know me and my favorite subject, but let's make it a little dicier. Literally. <laughs> I found another Exmo, and we are together collaborating to make Bloody Tales just for you. Blood Atonement, a new series from Unfiltered Rise and Hellfire Agency, where we take you down that murderous path. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll see you there. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Unfiltered Rise with me, Heidi Love. And today I have a guest that I am just thrilled to have with me, Gary Wayne. You are one of the people that I listen to constantly. I appreciate you, your wealth of knowledge. Your books are amazing. And I'd love to hear all about that and where they can find them. Yeah. So thank you for inviting me to your podcast and very much looking forward to the show today. And, you know, for people who aren't aware of me, I'm, I describe myself as a Christian contrarian. And uh, if biblically, you probably could do a comparative to a biblical Berean. So just as the Bereans ver verified everything Paul was saying through the scriptures, I try and measure everything that I research uh, within the scripture and everything within the scripture that stays within, you know, doesn't cause contradiction. Everything's sort of got a fit. So you don't leave out the inconvenient passages and you have to wrestle with all of the knowledge that's that's in the Bible. But that's my approach. So and I've written two books. One is the Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 1. And I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters on the website. And it is a book that I thought I would never do a sequel to, but and I started writing another book, and I'm and I'm actually back at it now because I struggled for three years with the book, and I said I didn't want to do a sequel to Gen Six. So, in the meantime, I was getting a lot of contact from the audience. I was receiving a lot of social media, Facebook, you name it, getting a lot of questions, sending information out, and I never realized the angst that was out there amongst the Christian community about the churches, what they teach and what they don't teach. And so it's one thing to focus on what they teach, but I like to focus on what they don't teach and what they don't teach, which is most of the Bible and all of the context for what they do teach is prehistory and prophecy. And so after listening to the Christians, they were saying that, and I'm Christian, but Christians as a whole is they were saying, we want a book, written for us. We want a book that goes deeper into the Bible than anybody else ever has. That tells us all about prehistory for the most part. And we want it done in a way that is not going to be sort of talking too much about what the polytheists sort of talk about. And book one is, you know, I bring everything back to the Bible. I measure everything against the Bible, but I let the spurious forces speak for themselves. But this is something that Christians are struggling with because they get so many challenges within the church that if you ask questions about prehistory or prophecy, you might be asked to leave the church because they don't <laughs> want to, they don't want to deal with it. And, and they don't provide the context and they don't provide the resonator as to why we're here. 
or, you know, our state of being and, and why we were created. And so great values, but no context. And it doesn't really tell us a whole bunch of where we're going and how we're going to get there. And that's really important if indeed we're in the fig tree generation, like I think. So I, I, I finally, I listened. <laughs> and so I decided I would write a sequel, but specifically for Christians and to go deeper in on things like the angelic hierarchy, both fallen and loyal, uh, things like Mount Hermon, uh, things like giants, uh, hybrid giants, the wars of the giants that Israel fought against the giants and the hybrid giants, right from Genesis, and also including an update from book one on Genesis 14 as it connects into everything that I'm talking about in the first part of the book. And so all of the campaigns, and I break it down, all of the campaigns, including the ones that come after the conquest of the covenant land which is the wars in the book of judges and i identify how we know we're dealing with giant kings and hybrids and and uh and humans that are following them in those wars in the judges and all the way through king david king saul and right through to king solomon and track a lot of the different sort of dynasties and things like that that that, that are established in there and while i'm doing it i'm doing references to end time prophecy on important words that you need to understand for end time prophecy to get the full context. And then I transition uh, into end time prophecy and I demonstrate my approach to prophecy, which is kind of different than uh, other uh, eschatology that's out there. And I identify my approach in the preface so that people can understand how I get where I'm going. And they can either accept that or not, but they understand, well, I understand how I get there. And I lay down an end time chronology that is, in my opinion, uh, and it's not the complete one, but you get the bigger picture. There'll be other books because it's such a big topic. I hate to say that, but this, as it <laughs> relates to this topic, I still give you a very good end time chronology without conflict. Right. And, that, and I, I love how you do that. Yeah. Passages. Yeah. Yeah, I love how you bring it with what I call receipts, right? Because yeah. it's so easy just to throw whatever out there or a speech or a sermon. That's a different thing. But when you bring yeah. it back to the Bible and you give this page like, here you go. I mean, yeah. that makes sense. And yeah. what happens through this whole process is, is people learn more about what's in the Bible that they're not taught about. And hopefully it'll give them a perspective to dig a little bit deeper and not to just rely on the standard preconceived conclusions to eschatology. Um, and it's not like my, my approach is complicated. It's so simple. Um, but you can't leave out inconvenient passages. That's a red flag. And the other, you yeah. know, and, the, and, and there's kind of 10 guidelines that I use to try and discipline myself. And that, None of those passages in the Bible, when it's talking about a specific, specific prophecy narrative or linking in with other prophecy narratives, there can't be any conflicts. And so the only way you can get there is just to do what's so simple, is to put everything around what Jesus said and not vice yes. versa. So don't define what Jesus said by what the other prophets said, because they're just speaking what was provided to them from the word from the word of God right. who provided us the template in Matthew 24. And then I put Luke uh, 17 and 21 and Mark 13's additional details onto that. And then I can funnel all of the uh, other passages into that template and all the contradictions go away. And, you know, a lot of people say, but you can't put revelation around that. Well, of course you can. 
Right. And it has to fit because it has to be perfect. And right in the opening of Revelation 1 to 1, 3, we're told it's the testimony of Jesus Christ that the angel is going to present to John in a vision. If that's the testimony of Jesus, it has to fit perfectly with this chronology that he's laid down in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17 and 21. Of course it does. And it's, yes. it's, it's, you know, it's a big show to even cover off how Revelation is laid out. But it is quite simple when you just sort of break it down from the churches uh, into Revelation 6 in the last seven years. And that you understand that at the midpoint of Revelation 14 is the midpoint of the last seven years and then you get a summary then you get the details of those major summaries that are listed in exact chronological order in revelation 14 after the first fruits are martyred and in heaven and it fits perfectly with matthew 24 so you just sort of put it on there and sort of the uh, icing on the cake in revelation 14 is before you get the summary you'll have the angel preaching preaching the last of the gospel so it's perfect because that all happens before the abomination uh, in Matthew 24, which Jesus guides us towards the books of Daniel to understand this last seven years that were set aside for all prophecy and vision to be fulfilled in the coming of righteousness and, and the Messiah in his second return. So um, it's all Isn't there. it amazing? Isn't it amazing what you can do when you stop the meddling of man? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and you take jesus and you just go with jesus yeah awesome. just put everything around what he says and it's gonna it's gonna work uh, whether it's prophecy or doctrine or anything and so that's that's the approach i try and show in book three i'll show more of that in different aspects and there'll probably be more because there's just so much to tell on end time prophecy but it starts there if you can just right. start there you don't have to worry about all the other sort of points of view, consider them. And I always tell people, you know, because they say, what's my position on uh, rapture? And I do have a position on it, but my approach is simply this is, is I pray for pre-trib, I prepare for mid-trib. Right, right. Because we can't, we can't just rely on something, one part yeah. that goes yeah. back to one part again, we have to take the whole. And yeah, I think so you do that. So book two is uh, about to be released. It's got an official March 12th date. Uh, was, it went to the printers in, in October. It got into the printing queue in December. I was initially told I might have it by late December or early January, and the updates just kept coming. And then I was told it was going to ship a week and a half ago. I still don't have any... Uh, confirmation <laughs> of the book shipping. I know Amazon put out an ad out there on the weekend for the release of book two and did a promotion on it for the upcoming and you can pre-order off of Amazon and other online Amazing. bookstores as well. So I'm still, I'm, you know, I sent another email today to see whether it's shipped, but it's, it's, it's imminent. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> and if people want to have a look at what's in book two, you can go to the website, genesis6conspiracy.com, Genesis 6, the number six, generous excerpt of all 84 chapters. So a little bit smaller this time, as opposed to the 98 <laughs> of book two. It's the only thing I promised book two was going to be smaller and it would be targeted at Christians, um, right. specifically targeted to, to provide them the things that they need to know um, to answer all of the pushback from within the church, or at least most of it. And so if you wanted to get a signed copy, you can 
uh, get book one or book two, book two on pre-order at this point. And you just go to buy now, book one or book two, and 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 go to buy from the author. And there's a international page if you're overseas, because uh, I want to make sure I, uh, people around the book have access to the book. There's a Canadian page and there's a US page. So wherever you fit in that geography, and you can also link over to Amazon.com from the Buy Now page to BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.ca, and over to the Kindle version for both. So that's the easiest, fastest way to get a hold of the book. Uh, either way you buy it, it's all fine by me. Um, I do enjoy doing the signed copies because it's kind of, I appreciate yeah. people who are going to actually order it and wanting it signed from me. And that if you think that you're getting the whole book in the generous excerpts, if you've not read book one, be aware that's a small <laughs> drop of the bucket as yes. to what's in that large bucket. And people who have read book one, they know there is no loose paragraphs or sentences. It's information all the way through. And it doesn't stop coming until the last chapter. Well, and what a gift that you have done that, even though it's a big volume and I get that, but you, you're covering all the bases and that yeah. is something that's so important. I well, think. yeah. And what I do is I, uh, I, I did a similar model to book one where I write it each chapter as a mini story. Um, and they're four to six pages long. So you can read a chapter a night or, and you can't speed read my book because there's too much information. So I, I, I used to joke I, I should put a warning on the on the book cover that <laughs> if you speed read it, you're going to pop some brain cells. So uh, digest. Watch it. out, people. Yeah. <laughs> You've digest been warned. It as you can, but because it's written in that way, and that information will come up again and again as the as it's relevant throughout the book, is you can pick a chapter and read it out of order. Or you can okay. read it at your own pace. And so another thing I like to say, whether it's book one or book two, just if you just summarize the table of contents, it's going to get your interest up. So, and I cover off uh, topics and names in my table of contents in book two that I'll guarantee most Christians have never heard of before. Yeah, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of Christians are shy about apocryphal reading. A lot of Christians are shy about things they've taken out. I, I just feel like this was done by man. Like it, this wasn't how it was to be presented all, all chopped up like this, you know, and I think you do a great job of bringing a lot of answers together for people. Yeah. And I want to make clear, I'm not a prophet. No, no. I'm a researcher and you know, I came back to Christ uh, kicking and screaming, um, so to speak. <laughs> I was pretty stiff-necked, and so, but... That's the best kind. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, once I started to, and I was came back on a challenge in terms of a book that I was asked to read, and I wanted to verify things, and to do that, you have to really get into the Bible and read it, and so I was absolutely... Um, disinterested and bored with the Old Testament as I yeah. slugged my way through it the first few reads. Uh, but in the first read, you know, when I started to read the gospel from Matthew uh, through the four gospels and then in support with the, of the other disciples and apostles and, and those that scripture, those first four gospels, it struck me probably by the time I was halfway through Mark, um, so not the first book because I'm a contrarian, right. I'm stiff-necked, <laughs> things like that. 
uh, <laughs> uh, it just it, it just hit me like no human can speak this way. Right. This is right. The words coming out are so preternatural, so preternatural that even the Pharisees who had the scriptures Jesus was referencing, they didn't understand what he was saying. And it just hit me that, th that this has to be whom he says he is. And right. if that's the case, then I better really get serious about this because it changed my my preconceived notions completely. And, you know, I, I was brought up in the church, but through education and peer pressure, by the time I was a teenager, I had bought into the ridiculous uh, theory of evolution and secular ideology. And even though it doesn't stand the test of of uh, criticism and mathematics in a lot of cases in terms of the time possible timelines. Um, yeah, I, I realized, you know, I had to have more faith to believe in that than I would have to believe in what Jesus said. Right. And so you kind of came back around and got Bible slapped or <laughs> yes, <laughs> whatnot. Yeah. Smitten uh, and humbled and humbled many times, let me tell you. So, um, but you're here now and look at I'm all this wisdom. Yeah. So, yeah, that's wonderful. And I think that it's just so important that things that are left out or the things that people like, people can believe that we went to the moon and I'm not going to debate it, but okay, whatever. We go to space. We do these other things that we're not there for. We don't know, you know, one way or another, we're, we're not there, but they have the hardest time believing in giants. And I'm like, yeah. it's bananas to me. Why? You know, yeah, it's, I, it's crazy, you know, and with the church and, and, and the people in the church are brainwashed to think like the ministers are teaching and understand that they're not taught prehistory or prophecy in the seminary schools and are told not to teach it. So mm -hmm. if we are in the fig tree generation, they're not preparing the flocks, which is the biggest issue. Um, but they do talk about so many preternatural things in what they do teach about, but they don't want to talk about other preternatural things in, in the Bible that makes them a little bit uncomfortable with, uh, and it just shows you that they have been bent to the wisdom of this world, not bent to the wisdom of heaven, uh, mm -hmm. and that they are, um, you know, they're, they're, they've kind of lost themselves um, and led themselves away from what they're there to do, and it's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree with that. And I'm sure when you first started doing this, I don't think you probably got a uh, open armed reception <laughs> from uh, churches and or Christians probably, because this is a touchy yeah. subject with a lot yeah. of people. And so, or Christian I mean, publishers, it, right, right. You to even get Genesis it out. Six and most Christian publishers will say, we will not touch you with a 10 foot pole, so to speak. Right. So this was a literal work of of love. Like, I can't imagine that you were thinking it would even get out that well or whatever, but here you are trying to prepare flocks that are not even people that, you know, I mean, you're, yeah. you're just doing God's work. And that is, I mean, if we could all try our best, right. Everybody sure. has a different and, work. Yeah. And if, if you disagree with what I say, make your argument scriptural, right. And don't manipulate right. the scripture and don't leave out inconvenient passages and, we can have a respectful discussion yeah. uh, and I would be respectful anyways, but I would be saying, 
well, <laughs> you have to be careful this is with what, what you're saying because yeah. you're... <laughs> <laughs> right? It is what it is. We can't it is change what it. it. Is. Yeah. 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 We can't change the words. And I know that you've been delving into more of even the Hebrew and the Greek mm -hmm. and all those parts of it. And I mean, people don't really do that. I feel like the yeah. people that do come at me sometimes in a different instance, like with Mormonism, and I, yeah. I'll talk to Mormons that are in versus I'm an anti-Mormon now. And I say, but this, 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 and they'll know, like you said, little things, and then they'll yeah. leave out big things. And they're yeah. like, oh, JK. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, and you know, in book one, I, I do deal with a lot of etymology, which really got a lot of people's interest up as well. But what I didn't do is I didn't get behind the etymology in a significant detailed way, because the book is really huge as it is. And I wanted to keep it from not manipulating in any way or fashion what the spurious forces had to say on something. I wanted them to speak for themselves, indict themselves, and then we measure what's in the Bible and see what is a polytheist lens on the same event or end time prophecy. And where it diverts, let's understand that's their belief system. And it doesn't matter whether or not we believe that or not. Mm -hmm. It's what they believe and what they're doing with that belief system that we need to we need to understand. So I get into etymology and Hebrew and Greek, unlike what I did in the first book, and in a way where I'm putting the footnotes on the front page this time, not on the front page, but on the same page, because there's so much information yes. uh, on, on it. I want people to read it and then look down and have that in information right there for them. Costs a little bit more to do that, but it's just... Again, I I I I don't want to didn't want to be so into the minutia in a paragraph that, but and then not leave right. out the information. So I still wanted it sort of visible there. And I would call it, if you like Dr. Heiser's work, and I I can't say I've read any of his work, but he's quite famous, and I've heard a lot about it. I would say from what I heard of what he wrote and taught is this is Dr. Heiser on steroids in a lot of cases. Right. In terms right. Of how deep it goes. Right. This is amazing because I mean, I, I know I followed you for a long time and I know you said you would not ever do a second book. You were like, no, nope, um, nope. I'm good. I, well, yeah. I didn't want to be redundant and I, I didn't right. see the, the angle as to why, because I took 300 pages out of the first book just to get it down to a size where somebody might try and take the venture or the journey. And so... <laughs> Uh, I thought, you know, all you're going to do is just write more about the same thing. But so I had to I had to learn um, how to understand that they weren't looking for the redundancy. They wanted things between the lines filled in a lot more. And right. so and what writing book two did was it showed me how to write book three that I was unable to do. And I've been actively rewriting that whole book and. You know, expecting, I think I'm going to take a couple of years to, to get it right. Um, and right. there'll be a part three out, but that goes in a different direction still, particularly with the prophecy. So it begins with giants boy. <laughs> and covenants <laughs> and then goes into Israel, lost tribes uh, and prophecies for them specifically for the end time and how that meshes into the chronology.
Okay. So those, uh, for those that don't know, um, you know, maybe kind of explain a little bit about just a brief synopsis of, of what your work is mostly circled at first around giants and the Nephilim and the angels. And like, it gets into a lot more, but like, this is, I think where people see it to begin to pull them in because yep. this is all the great stuff they take out, right? Like why take out the good part? This is yeah. so bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like in, in book three, I mean, people, do, do they don't really understand that, you know, the first sort of promises and things that are made are done at the time of Adam, and then giants are created not that long afterwards, and then Noah gets a building set of covenants on top of the promises to Adam. And then after the flood, giants resurface again. And those covenants get added on to Abraham and into Isaac and into Jacob and down to the Holy Covenant. Right. Right. So it's, and it's all intermixing with these uh, giants in, you know, both before and after the flood in the days of Noah. And it's so funny to me because people will say, oh, giants, oh, they, they're, they're dead. The flood killed them. Um, yeah. That's all. Or they're locked up. That's all, you know, yeah, and I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> and one of the things that I didn't want to get into in a lot of detail in the book, one was about Raphaim, because you have two different terms for giants. Some people would say three with gibberim. Um, and there is one passage in the Bible in, 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 in Job 16 where it translates gibberim as a giant. And you could decide whether that's an accurate translation from the word uh, mighty one or not in that application. Uh, I think it's fine either way, actually. Uh, but Nephilim is only mentioned three times in the Bible. Right. And it's once in Genesis 6, 4 in the creation, and then twice in Numbers 13, 33 in the embellished evil report of the terrified <laughs> scouts uh, yeah. who didn't want to go fight these giants. So they said the Anakim, and in book two, I solidify, don't call them ites, because Israelites weren't giants. Uh, the, in Hebrew, I am is the suffix and the male plural. So Nephilim, Seraphim, Raphaim. So it says that the Anakim are, were children of the giants twice. And that's okay. the Nephilim word. And what's going on there is, is that... They are trying to scare the Israelites, not that there aren't giants, but that it brings a, an understanding of the veracity and the difference between the giants before the flood and after the flood, that they are even more horrible, larger, bigger, more terrifying than the post diluvian giants. And they use that reference so that they don't have to go up and take them on. And we know there's two kinds of people in the accurate part of the report done by Caleb and uh, Joshua, that there are people stronger and taller than Israel. And these are the hybrids where we're introduced mm -hmm. to that. And I get into how we know about hybrids um, in the new, in, in the, in, in the post-Diluvian epoch. But they also mentioned the three Anakim kings of Hebron or Kiriath Arba, which was the patriarch for uh, the Anakim. And not in the table of nations, of course, because Raphaim patriarchs aren't listed in the table of nations of <laughs> yes. Genesis 10, First Chronicles. But you do get an addendum onto Chronicles and shows up in Genesis and Genesis 36 with the Horim kings and the Dukes of Seir, the Dukes of Edom, 
and gives you that part of the table of nations so you have a better understanding what's going on in the testament but not as descendants of noah right, right. these are right. hybrids that are going to be created or giants that are being talked about that are that are in addition and so uh in Numbers 13.33, these are called the Anakim, and then the reference has how, and by the way, all the details to the accurate part of the report, and most people forget about this, and if you're not ready for it, those who are trying to wedge doubt in you will cite, well, all of that report was the evil report, but there's clearly two people discussing, and then Deuteronomy 1, 40 years later, Moses is reciting the same details and confirming the Anakim kings were there and that the people were taller and stronger, the Israel that were separate. And those people are, you know, hybrid tribes like the Amorites, the Amalekites, uh, the uh, Canaanites. And again, that's why I spent a lot of time on the hybrids in, in, in book two. But when you get it for a definition and a comparative passage about the An Anakim, the defining passage comes out of Deuteronomy 2. And it says the Anakim are giants. So Nephilim is <laughs> embellished, but the word there is Rapha, the singular form mm -hmm. of Raphaim for a tribe of giants. And that uh, they are different than the Nephilim. Somehow, some way, they're, and they're probably a little bit smaller. Not seven to nine feet tall that the hybrids are, but somewhere between, let's say, 10 and 19 feet tall after the flood by the dimensions that were provided with a two to one height to width ratio. So stout and strong. Right. Um, wow. Just as, as Og's bed dimension was kept at Rabbah on display for you know, hundreds of years to show the people that people they fought against were giants and never to forget this that. was and real was, yeah. yeah and, and the yeah. bed was made of iron because it couldn't hold their weight so uh so raphaim are the post-diluvian giants and that's used over 25 times in the old testament not over 25 times and that twice it is actually translated as raphaim in the king james version bible and that's as a tribe of giants in Genesis 14, which is the War of Giants, and then mm. amongst the Mighty Seven of the Mighty Ten, and I discussed the Mighty Ten, the hybrids and the giant nations within there as well in Book Two, and take them back to patriarchs, and some of them to fallen angels, uh, and that's the land that Abraham is promised. So immediately after the War of Giants, you have the promise of the land from the Nile to the Euphrates to be part of Abraham's covenant and for, uh, you know, his descendants. Uh, so all of that is part of the mix. And, and then people will say, well, giants aren't really giants. Uh, right. They're just, oh, they were just tall. Yeah. <laughs> they're just sort of tall, uh, yeah. seven, eight feet tall. Well, don't confuse. That's why you have to understand the hybrids. Don't let them do that to you. Yes. And the word Nephilim, they say, well, you could define that as a tyrant or a bully. And that part is true mm -hmm. as well in in the uh, Hebrew for 5303 Nephil. Uh, and that's the singular. I am is the is the plural. Well, let's look at the word tyrant. And tyrant uh, is and I talked a little bit about this in book one and I really nail it down in book two for the exact sort of lineage of how people say that 
the Tyrannos uh, is linked to the giants in the land of the covenant, particularly through the Philistine kings. And those ones in Ezekiel uh, that are referenced as these evil beast-like kings. And I cover the beast kings in book two as well. So the Tyrannos goes back to Greek for a lineage of kings. And these are dynastic kings. And they go back to uh, the original patriarch which is giants, and these are all giant lineages downstream and created from the gods. And one goes back to sort of uh, Hercules as the Herculides bloodline, for, and you see these Gyge and Gygus kings as, as you get them transliterated. And there's a reason why there's a Y sound and a G sound that's important. And you also have a lineage of just the Gyge kings or the Gygus kings. There's they're considered synonymous because the Herculides is just one branch of these giant kings. And Don't so you they, find were, it... they were called oh, Tyrannos because they were so evil. And that's where tyrant comes from. So, and I'll just finish um, off and then I'll get to the other bully. No, you're one good. That, uh, that bully I find it. I find about. it so interesting that if you go to other countries, Yep. They don't call this mythology. They call it history. Yes, they do. Exactly you what them. you're saying. Yeah. yeah it's... And so some people will say, well, gigantic goes back to earthborn right. and doesn't go back to mean being a giant. They're just earthborn and they're taller. Giant is the tyranny uh, imposed upon the English language, as we're supposed to believe, except that Gigantic has its etymology in the word gigas, G-I-G-A-S, as we would transliterate it. And when it ends in an, uh, an A, in this case, it makes the G sound and it's singular. And when it's an E, then it's pronounced as a Y for plural. So gaiis or gigas. And so when you see that translation for kings in Greek mythology or other references that's what it's talking about and gigantes is rooted in gigas or gigantes in in the plural so singular would be with an a plural is with an e and it makes that sound y so the etymology for gigantic comes from gigas the etymology for giant um, comes from both gigantes gigantic and giant as it's transliterated as in plural for giants or giant and sing singular, which they, they conflate the two with that and gigas again. So it all goes back to the actual word giant and the gigantes were understood as these monstrous hundred armed giants uh, <laughs> that Gaia created. And there was also giant kings that came from the from the gods to create the demigods. And one of those gigantes was named Gyges in singular. <laughs> okay. So there's, I mean, these, and these are people that are writing a book and back then not even everyone knew how to read. So this would yeah. be important. This is yeah. why you're focusing. Yeah. Because it meant something different. Yeah. I mean, yeah. very so, different. So yeah. Gigantic is related as an extension from the source word um to give you the fuller meaning just as you get that out of hebrew and and greek in the new testament but it's not doesn't mean that just because gigantic is one of the sources for giant in english from right. greek doesn't mean you dismiss the other one and again if they're leaving out 
information or details or passages in the Bible to make their argument, you know, there's something wrong there that's fairly easy. A little fishy. Out. Yeah. So the other <laughs> term is bully. So there, so there are bullies. There's lots of bullies. We have bullies today. Well, the gods were called bulls. <laughs> And particularly where we get that account comes out of the Ugaritic text, where it has uh, Baal and Ashtaroth as the creator of the Rephaim giants after the flood. And they rule from the council of the gods on Mount Hermon. And they have a council of the Datanu or the Tanu there, which is all different kinds of giants. And it's a, kind of the root word for Tuatha Dudanan or the tribe of Danu. There's a lot of different transliterations for, for that. And that both the gods were called the kings, as were the giants in the Ugaritic text. And, of course, it's the Balim and the Balim Council, which is mostly focused on in the Bible. Right. And that the Ugaritic texts were written in Semitic, which is the root language for Hebrew. And so you can actually take uh, RPM, which is the original Semitic for Raphaim, um, as, as and as it's transliterated into English today is Rapiu or Rapium, just as you have with Nephilim, the old pronunciation was uh, Napalim with a P and the H is, is silent, whereas today we now do it as a PH. It's a, sort of the evolution of the language. Raphaim has the same etymological history. So RPM uh, is in the same evolution as Nephilim and, and Raphaim has. So these are the giants that are terrifying the covenant land where the Balim rules, and they're doing rituals to bring Baal and Ashtaroth back because they have a fertility issue mm -hmm. and that they want them to produce more giants. But they don't come back because they can't. They can't walk amongst us again because like their parents, and in this case, El and Astart, um, and, and other names for the parent gods before the flood, they were already sent to the prison. Uh, they created giants before the flood. They're offspring gods who move up in rank and order, and I cover off Saba and uh, the army of angels, as, and that's translated as host of heaven from Saba. Host that means an army of angels that they would move up afterwards. And then they did the same crimes as their parents did. They went off to the pit prison as well, sometime by Babel or shortly thereafter. And that's who uh, the people from Babel intermarry with is all of these giants that have been recreated after the flood or survived, depending on how you get there, might be both. I lean heavily towards second incursion. Um, and that in the book, I'll cover off that they take the daughters of Canaan to make those giants. And it's important to understand the timing from the time of Babel and the time of the end of the flood. It's about 100 years. But on Ararat, the mountain of the curse, as Ararat is defined, Ham defiles Noah, but Ham doesn't receive the full curse. It's actually a curse and a prophecy, which is kind of unique. It's a unique, just as the Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent curse prophecy is the same type. This curse does not affect Ham. It does not affect Cush. does not affect any of the other brothers except for Canaan. And so in spite, and to try and I think my, my speculation to limit the aspects of serving 
their brethren in serving Israel uh, who would come about, they decided they would intermarry um, after Babel with those giants and create all sorts of hybrids uh, amongst them, uh, which which we can talk about if you want. So yeah. uh, later, yeah, but I'm, just to sort of give great. some connections to what's going on here is that um, these Raphaim, uh, they're going to go come back to my original point is, is that because of that fertility issue, they have an incentive to intermarry with Canaanites and other peoples in other locations outside the covenant land, lest they go extinct. Right. So they have to do something. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that they are, they have a fertility issue from this passage of these tyrants in Ezekiel 32, which includes the Pharaoh, who's a beast king empire, uh, and Raphaim and those, bloodline. Those heads are not, not just from cradle stuff. Come on now. Or wrapping. Let's get real. They had... A lot of them that are they're digging up now that have red hair. Yeah, they have red hair, red hair and blonde and, hair. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, okay, this is uh, no, I, I yeah. don't believe it. You can you can create <laughs> that shape, but you can't increase the volume. No, yep, and you can't get rid of the sutures. So when you say yes. King Akhenaten, Egyptian bloodline down from, uh, you know, that would be connected within the Pharaoh bloodlines. Um, and he's like over a thousand years after the flood. And so there's a dilution going on because they have to intermarry. Uh, he has this big elongated skull. Uh, yeah. If he's not shown without this big, huge cap to cover that elongated <laughs> yes. skull, he's, he's depicted both ways. And he still has his seraphim serpentine look to his face with these high cheekbones, protruding chin, this big humongous cone head these large yeah. eyes that are wrap around it's and, not and natural there's no yeah. way yeah there's no way <laughs> yeah. so these no. are the terrible ones as pharaoh is being talked about just as akhenaten would be a terrible one in ezekiel 32 and they're speaking to the terrible ones that pharaoh is speaking to is in they are in prison in the sides of the pit in Ezekiel 32, they're talking to Pharaoh in this creepy dual prophecy, as I like to talk about it. And also the mighty are talking to Pharaoh as well. And that goes back to the Hebrew word El for an angel or a god. So these are the parent gods, the offspring gods, and the terrible ones who were slain and went to the pit prison and are speaking to another terrible one. And that's the Hebrew word Arit. And that in in its plural, as in ones in plural, as, as opposed to a terrible one, would be eritim. So in that definition of these terrible ones, which are the Raphaim, and speaking to one of their um, brethren that's on the Pharaoh throne, um, they are described as giants would be described as in the definition. But the key two elements in that large definition is you know, infertility and childless. Mm -hmm. So they have a fertility issue that shows up more in a inability to produce females more than a semen or an ovary issue. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And that gets to be the issue. And, and, and doublefold because in their warlike nature, when they capture other rival kings or giants, they used to slaughter the harem along with it. 
And so they were they were in self inflicting a lot of that infertility issues. So that's why they're trying to have in the Ugaritic text, they're doing fertility rituals to bring Baal and Ashtaroth back to create more giants. And King Og is the last of the Raphaim, last of the giants. That's the Hebrew word Rapha, not Nephilim, post-Diluvian giant. And he's the last of that first generation. And he actually moves to Mount Hermon after the War of Giants and takes over and rules over Amorites, which are hybrids, uh, and sets up 60-city Pentapolis empire. It's the most powerful empire of the giants, um, even larger than Sihon, who has about 30 to 35 cities, as you count that in 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 uh, the Bible. And that would be five to six Pentapolis, um, so half the size. So there might even be more that, uh, you know, weren't, weren't all, weren't, listed but we're told that there are 60 cities of of og in in the bible and so that starts to make sense of the terrible ones why king og is ruling over the amorites if you understand the Raphaim are almost wiped out in the war of giants there and there's a void and og probably moves there well how do i get there well i was talking about the ugaritic text and that second word of the compound word is arit, meaning terrible one. There you uh, go. Yeah. And UG is the transliteration for og. So UWG in Hebrew, rooted in OWE. And ug is thought to be a word for a king, too. Um, oh. So, yeah. And I cover off some of those different variations. But what it's saying is, is this is the city of og, the terrible one. So just as you have Hebron, which was originally named Kiriath Arba, the city of Arba, the patriarch of the Anakim, um, this is now the Kiriath Ugarit, the city of Og, the terrible one. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's Raphaim, and all of these giants go. are Raphaim in the tribe of Datanu, recorded in the Ugaritic text. So it starts to make some sense out of, out of these titles and words and names. And of course, Rafa does not show up in the right. table of nations. Why? Because he's Raphaim. Right. They're not <laughs> going to put patriarch. that. <laughs> yeah. So you can, you can understand and translate. So you have to be careful. It can be a name, which you have a couple people named as Rafa throughout the old Testament. It can also mean, um, a generic name for a giant, as it's used, like the Valley of Giants, the Valley of the Raphaim. Um, and it could be a specific sort of patriarch of the, of the tribe. And so we have to be careful in the application of that. But all of it's going back to meaning giants. And bully fits with the, as being a bull of Bashan, where Mount where right. ruled and the Raphaim ruled from everything starts to fit because Bishan is in the Mount Hermon region. Of course he would want to be right. uh, king of that region as well. So everything sort of starts to fit with all of the, the definitions, the history and the, and the, and the parallel accounts, the consistency is just absolutely extraordinary. Right. It wouldn't fit like a puzzle if it was just nonsense. Right. I mean, yeah. it can't. So yeah, when Christ is depicted on the cross in the book of Psalms where he's surrounded by the bulls of Bashan, mm. they're talking oh, about the makes... Balim 
and their spirits offspring, the disembodied spirits of those giants, not in the pit prison. Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense with that definition that I, I wouldn't even have put that together. That's awesome, actually. <laughs> oh, my. Not awesome for him. I'm just saying all the definition. <laughs> Probably not at all. <laughs> but yes, that fits well. I can see where you're going there. Yeah. And, you know, it used to be a lot of people would say to me that, you know, you talk about all these bloodlines, but we don't get told about these bloodlines in in the Bible. And you do. You just don't recognize it. And that right. uh, you get genealogies and you get um, patriarchal names that come down through history. And, you know, I like in book one, I talked about Agag as being the Agagite king of the Amalekites in the time of the Exodus. There's an Agag uh, in the time of King Saul and King David, or later well, David's alive at that time. And then there's an Agagite, um, which is thought to be synonymous in, in its uh, understanding and meaning for Amalekite and reflective of a bloodline of the Agagite uh, dynasty who sits at the throne of the Persian Empire that's what uh, uh, people always ask me. My actually, my mother-in-law, yeah. when I was trying to explain some things, and she said, "Well, who was they?" Because I said, "Well, they run." You know, when you're talking to people, these people run the world. They run the world. And she said, "Well, who is they?" And I thought, "Uh oh, this is going to be fun." Okay, yeah. and I started kind of explaining like there's these thirteen bloodline families, but I know there's more than that. That's just yeah. for each region. Yeah. And I was trying to explain, and and you lose people so fast because yeah. they just think you're gone. Yeah, you're, you're you know? just you're just <sighs> out there, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so Haman the Agagite is trying to wipe the remnant of Judah from the face of the earth, and he's got the highest position around all the vassal kings that report to the emperor. Um, and that's not, I mean, you just wouldn't have a nobody. Right. Promoted to that it sort matter. of level. Yeah. And is carrying <laughs> out the blood oath to wipe Israel from the face of the earth, just that the Nephilim were created mm -hmm. to wipe us out from the face of the earth so that we would not reach our, reach our destiny. So there is, these are these Royal bloodlines and you do get Royale, uh, talked about in 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 the Old Testament, and royal means kings of God. As you take that back when it's etymology through Old French roy, and back to Latin for regal and words like that, majestic, all words that are associated with the royals. And al is the transliteration of el, just as il is in other languages, like in uh, you know Babalu or something, or the gateway of the gods, as they would understand Babel, as opposed to confusion of languages. And uh, so we see that in Baal, which in the occult means Lord God or Master God, mm -hmm. uh, and the Al is that transliteration of El. Yeah, that's why a lot of times when you see these people praying to Lord, their Lord. Or yeah. they'll specifically say their God. They won't. Oh, they don't like Jesus. They don't say that word. Yeah. Um, but you know, you they'll say, "Oh, well, look, he's a Christian. Look, he says uh, thank you to you know his Lord." And I'm like, yeah. that doesn't always mean what you think it means. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and and Royale is understood as a majestic dynastic line of pure bloods that go back to a specific patriarch of a dynasty mm -hmm. 
And of course, wow. they take their genealogies back to specific patriarchs, as in the Julia Gens of the Black nobility, of the older Black nobility in Italy, or the Rex Deus, as I call them, or Rex Deus in, in book one, uh, also means kings of God. And they get their divine right to rule from the Baleen gods. And they swear their oath in this divine right of inheritance that we just saw again with King Charles III that goes back into this prehistory. And it's not to the God of the Bible, it's to a specific celestial mafia godfather that created them, that they're loyal right. to. And right. that's who they swear, swear that oath to in their oath-based society that was created at the time of mysticism before the flood by Enoch, son of Cain, and the mm -hmm. Oath of Harem Anathema on Mount Hermon, as the book of, of uh, Enoch talks about, that the angel swore to carry it out to the end and went to create the giants to wipe the, to use to wipe out humankind from, from the face of the earth. So it, it's sort of all interconnected. And I used to ask a question, and I'm asking it more because I realized that I should be bringing it up in some of the talk shows, is what makes a royale? What, right. makes what them... gives them that divine right, right? It's yeah. blood. It's yeah. blood. Why do they think they're superior? It's they're, the they blood. think of themselves as demigods because that's mm -hmm. the genealogies that they keep track of that takes them back to it. And they've yes. been ruling over us both before and after the flood. And they created the four class system with them populating the upper two class. And we only get the small entrepreneurial class of bakers, tailors, blacksmiths, things like that. And the rest is the slave and a ritual class or the slave and the, and the work class that they, that they need. So they populate all of that. And if it's going to be like the days of Noah, they're going to bring that four class system in, which is why you've got this war on the middle class to reduce mm -hmm. them back to that level where they populate the complete upper class of oligarchs with the large business, all of the religious class, all of the, uh, the class of the educated class, the elite, all of the governance class. And well, and I, I have so many questions that I'm, yep. I'm going to save them to the end, but on this part right here on this class thing, it also goes right along with look at what's happening to the human population because what's happening yep. now we're having infertility. Yeah. Just like the giants of old, they know this game and they know how to play it. They like, do. They do. Yeah. They control yep. everything. I agree. 100%. I totally agree. <laughs> and, you know, there are passages in the Bible that talks to us about this seed line. Yes. There's an appointed seed. And then there's this spurious seed and or the serpent seed. So I do cover the serpent seed as it connects to the serpent's root. That's talked about in Isaiah 14, which is the passage uh, of Satan falling from heaven and mm -hmm. wanting to be raised up like God's. And it's all sort of interconnected. Uh, so it's a large prophecy and it starts at the beginning of 13 and goes through to the end of 14. And so in Genesis 3.15, you have this uh, curse prophecy where the serpent is, is there's going to be enmity, enmity between the and the woman. So it's a curse that takes the Nahash, the serpent, back down to what we understand it today from this larger than human, intelligent, walking, talking, sentient being that's uh, been led astray by the fallen angels that deceives Eve in the garden and reduced to what it is today for participating in that fall. 
And now you can say, you know, let's say Satan coached him or entered into him to to give him the wisdom to be able to do that. But it's not Satan who was punished for this. It was the Nahash. So you're not going to see serpentine seed with Eve through a snake in that passage. Right. But it is a prophecy and a curse prophecy like the Hamlin. And I think it's fulfilled in Genesis 6 with the Serum Watchers the serpentine-faced watchers that cre first create this spurious seed that is in the preamble to the flood story and the context for the flood story and all the violence that they bring and all the angelic technology that completely corrupts the entire world. So we get that and a fulfillment, and we get these giants again after the flood. And then you get, and I was talked about the terrible ones, as this branch of the terrible ones, as they're called in Isaiah 25, that I talk about that are going to be killed on a mountain in the end time, which is, again, I cover off that and building on what Dr. Heiser talks about with Armageddon, but in a whole bunch of different ways in, in addition to it. And you get this, this prophecy in the end time in Daniel 2 and Daniel 2.43 that talks about they as in the descendants of the metallic empires and the descendants of uh, at least the Roman Empire as it rises again in the end time as these 10 kings. But understand you have a degrading metal. That's a degrading bloodline within this giant statue that's in the vision. <laughs> and, it's, and all the words are, are saying it's a giant as in statue. Uh, so it's these beast empires. And here's what it says in Daniel 2.43. It says, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. That happens in the end time. So there's a different mm -hmm. seed line here, just as Genesis 3 and, and Isaiah 14, uh, 25 and Isaiah, Isaiah 25 and Isaiah 14 is talking about. But the strongest one is Psalms 21.8. And if people have never looked at that, I would really encourage people to look at it because what it's talking about there is it's giving a time of the end and where there is a time of a fiery oven in the King James Version. I use the KGV in book two and a time of his anger in the time of wrath. This is all end time languages in the year of the Lord's wrath and the ultimate battle at Armageddon on that mountain where those terrible ones are going to be destroyed. It then goes in into Psalms 21.10 where it says, Their fruit shall thou destroy from the face of the earth. And if that wasn't strong enough, it says, And their seed from among the children of men. Mm. So people say that there isn't any biblical evidence to a bloodline that is going to be separated and dealt with in the end time. Right. And have another look and then i also cover off in the prophetic side how we can make the cognate words in greek and match uh, take cognate words in greek and hebrew and match them up to know that we're talking about the same thing so when it's talking about the great and mighty men and like the book of revelation i'll take that back to megas and megastrani that all goes back to describing giants mm. Wow. It just is a huge connection. I mean, if people research this, like you're, you're showing them to do, you're laying it out. It's not going to be hard. Like I'm sure you had to go search, you know, yeah. this is an easy connect connect. Yeah. Know? And I'm going to show you right there on the page where it comes from and any additional information and people can check the veracity of my research. Uh, right. So there are over a hundred pages of 
endnotes in book one, this this will actually have more. It's just not all grouped in one place. It's right, right. you know, as a together. That's I think yeah. that's a great idea. Yeah, I think that'll help a lot. Then you can just see it, like you said, right, right there. Yeah, and you've got my bibliography, so you can go get mm -hmm. the books yourself. Right, you right, exactly. Yeah, if you want to make sure that this is not some yep. wild thing, then you can go look at that yourself. Yep. You know, yep. that's and see great. whether or not I quoted it or described it yes. accurately. Right, right, exactly. That sounds great. This is going to be a great addition to everything you've already put out. And I can't imagine how much time this is taking you because it is lengthy and in depth, yep. which is exactly what we need. I mean, it's we got to get to the point of things because the world is changing rapidly. <laughs> it, and in book two, in the transition, I, I'll cover off a little bit more on, I know, subjects that you're interested. I'll do a little bit more on secret societies in book two. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, yes, one thing I didn't cover societies. in book one was the Jesuits. <laughs> right. And I give the whole basis for their creation as the new Templars and the sources. In book two, I cover that off and then I connect them into the Mary apparitions and the takeover of the Roman church in preparation for the end time and show you how that all sorts of fits and how they fit into the hierarchy of the secret societies. And then I also provide two interesting things that goes goes along a first with what we've talking talking about with the bloodlines and then mm -hmm. the power structure so they have two allegorical trees that they like to use and they connect back to of course to you know where mount herman um and right. one being the elm tree that i talk about in book one uh, just as the templars did their business under a great elm in paris and the cutting of the elm split the lower junior branch of the knights templar order away from the senior order of the priory of sion at the castle of geezers in 1188 after the templars lost jerusalem in 1187 because uh, they lost their way and and their main mission um, for the secret societies and so ash oak and elm are kind of used a bit interchangeably in in the bible and i show those applications so people know what i'm talking about so when it's talking about the oaks of bashan and when it's describing for example the amorites and their size they're as strong as the oaks of bashan um this is that tree that's being referenced and the other one for the for the organizational structure is the cedar of lebanon so there's like like the size of the cedars of lebanon which were like giant trees on two to one mm. height to width ratio when they became mature so 100 feet tall to about 50 feet wide um, wow yeah and that and then that's an assimile it's not an exact measurement for the right it's a simile, right so um but it's those two trees that are being used in their allegory here. So one is the genealogical tree, right? The right. family tree. That's an elm yes. tree or an ash tree or an oak tree. And again, if you look around the poly, uh, the, the, the polytheist religions around the world, they use like, like the Tuatha Dodanan in England and elsewhere uh, use the oak tree as the most holy tree but they're considered them kind of the same or the similar even though they're a little bit different species but that's the genealogical tree that they do their bloodlines on with all these different branches and so that's where that ideology comes from and i'll take that mm. back to where that starts in 
uh, in the Middle Ages and to kings that get back to the bloodline of the King of Jerusalem title. It's one of them that actually creates this genealogical tree, I think, in the 1600s, as I remember. The other one is the... Um, the, the the thalamic tree as they like to call it mm. and this is an evergreen tree and it helps you understand the massive size of organizations that they have so a pyramid doesn't work because there's so many organizations it just falls apart and you, you got to start leaving out organizations and it just doesn't sort of work <laughs> so this thalamic tree um is similar to the genealogical tree just with a different purpose and it has the roots that go down to their heaven hades sheol in the earth in another dimension where they get the genealogy or the genes from and the power from with the divine right to rule uh, mm. so again their allegories are absolutely astounding and they take that word out of the greek and particularly like it because of of the of uh, it being used in the in, in the uh, New Testament, and it's the word that where it says, you know, uh, God's will. Uh, will is thalem, and thalemic is the word that they're taking for thalemic tree for their organizational structure. It's also mistranslated a couple of times in the New Testament to be sexual or orgies and things like that, but that's because mm -hmm. it's part of their doctrine do as you will right, right. it's coming from crowley yeah, yeah Thelema, right exactly so i connect sort of all yes. of that in as well and that this thalemic tree has a trunk organization okay and uh so uh and when they say do as god's will they're talking about their specific god mm -hmm. yes of their genealogies Not, right yeah that we just that we right. talked about and it has these branches that intersect all the way through. So imagine this trunk or the set of trunk organizations where you have Freemasonry at the bottom, first level of adepthood at third degree, old system or 33rd degree, right? Three divided 11 ways, all sacred num numbers mm -hmm. and, uh, that they like to do a lot of in, 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 in polytheism, the knowledge cult. Um, yes. The obsession with of, Demetria. Yeah, obsessed. Yeah, yeah. And the knowledge that came from the fallen angels. They're the gods. Yes. That yes. merged with the seven sciences. Uh, above that is the Illuminati. And above that mm -hmm. is the Rosicrucians, where you get a first intersection of pure bloods with rising levels of lower initiates at adepthood. You have to be bloodline to be an adept. Um, and then as you get into the Rosicrucians, you're now intermixing with European pure bloods. And they populate the top half of the Rosicrucian order. And then above that is the committee of 300 families. And then above that is the council of 33 families. And above that <laughs> is the uh, 13 families. And so you have a lot right. of families within this ever-growing sort of hierarchy and how it sort of develops. And I, I, I described the connection between the Jesuits and the intersection downwards with the creation of the 300 and, and or upwards coming out of the Rosicrucians with the creation of the committee of 300 from the invisible 33 that were the original Rosicrucians after the fall of the Templars with the Priory of Sion and the senior organization. And so you have now 
all of these branch organizations that enter into a specific trunk organization. And then as that descends down as like a cedar branch does, you have that hierarchy of all these branches coming back into a main intersection uh, order at the, at the joint or the scioning or the branch level from the trunk that would be part of that organization and you have all of these branches coming in around the tree so you would see freemasonry being involved in all sorts of lower mm -hmm. level initiative organizations not at a depth level and right. of course they also work with in terms of their agenda uh the army mm. and politics and religion because the mormons yeah and they religion. are <laughs> yes uh, Talk, or, ab yeah. talk about yeah. Freemason uh, genealogy obsessed people. Yeah. We're right Typic in there. Yeah. Typically, those would be the, uh, there's a bit of a crossover there, but typically it would be the Illuminati that would be uh, looking to influence Christianity and any religion that's designed to you know, put out disinformation, redefine the Bible, give them the interpretive approach, add on to the Bible, whatever their standards are. All of those are. Yeah. <laughs> all of those things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So if you can imagine all of these going up the tree so that when you get to the committee of 300, for example, mm -hmm. you can include, because this will answer to most of the business aspect of what goes on in the world, because money controls everything in, in their world. And so the IMF, the World Bank, um, the Davos B20 group, um, anything that's connected into that level of, of global monetary control will intersect in there, as do the Bilderbergers, for example, that work with the rising new money members. Yes. And so they populate the top half of the Bilderbergers and bring in the new money. They bring them in once a year to go out with the marching orders. Just as they bring people in, they have to be invited to go to the World Economic Forum. And then they get their yeah. marching orders and they go out for the year. Um, and so the Jesuits, who are the new Templars, they would intersect in possibly at the original Rosicrucian level, which was the Invisible 33, Oh, and particularly through the black nobility or the Julia gens, um, as, as they populated many of the popes with their uh, black nobility bloodlines, because they control all, all, all of the religions, right, at the top level. So you could make an argument later on for a junior black nobility that migrated from Phoenicia and the Middle East to Venice and Florence and places like that, that would include, um, you know, the merchants and the traders. Um, and I'm trying to think of the famous um, banking arm out of Italy um, in around the 1500s. I can't think of their name, but, uh, oh, oh, sorry, it's It'll blank. Come. If I remember it, I'll bring it up. They would be considered part of the black nobility that was in control of reestablishing the Jesuits after their fall back in. But there's two different mm -hmm. levels of, of these um, uh, uh, of the black nobility there. So you have that possibility that they would answer into the committee of 300 versus the older black nobility that takes their bloodlines back through Caesar, Augustus the senator families back to Romulus or Remus and then the parent gods that created them. Uh, mm -hmm. So hopefully I wasn't too, too long in, in making those sort of connections, no. but, and so the Jesuits would 
would hook in at that higher level, but they're not at the top. And I didn't want to put them in the first book because it was controversial. And I, yeah. I didn't want to make the book another 100 pages to sort of <laughs> <laughs> try and fit that in there. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, that makes complete sense. That makes complete like and and the thing is, is it's all like when they say it's a big club and you're not in it, like literally they mean it. I, mean, I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. I don't know why this is so hard for um, people. I think it's because most people are not um, psychopathic and they don't understand the thought between you're an ant. You don't think about the ant. When you kill the ant, you just want it out of your house, right? Yeah. That's that's it. I mean, I hate to say that to people, but yeah, they look at us as cattle or insects. Yes. yes. Yep. They call it's... us both. That's part of their allegories. And and don't get confused because they have sort of dualism that's what I call at the micro level or within the belief system versus the dualism that you have this perpetual their head god being Satan. Uh, or Lucifer, as the Gnostics and the secret societies also call them, that is in a perpetual battle that never ends against the God of the Bible, who they look mm -hmm. at as evil. That's the macro dualism. But inside, they have white hats and black hats. Yes. So yep. when they're looking at some, you want to look at some of the names for white hats, you might look at them as they call themselves the gentlemen. Just as mm -hmm. the nobility says you have to be a gentleman, that's the ones who say they have the better interest of humankind in their hearts. And the evil ones, the barbarians, the still warrior ones, the ones who cause more of the wars, and they all cause wars. So I don't know how they try and split that, but they're the black hats. So, mm -hmm. but you have to understand, even though the black hats want to wipe us from the face of the earth and the white hats, which is the allegory they also use, uh, seem to have a better uh, view of humankind. They still have the same agenda and they still worship the same pantheon of gods. And it's designed to right. cattle herd us. That's why I like to use the word cattle as well as insects into mm -hmm. their um, agenda and into a world government and a universal religion that they want to bring about. So it's important to understand that we cannot allow that internal dualism that they have to mislead us. So they have white magic, they have black magic. It's just a constant. Mm -hmm. There are good giants, there are evil giants. Um, and so I like Elon Musk a lot. Um, I mean, he's a genius and he's helping with free speech, but I'm still not convinced he's not part of that whole hierarchy and a white hat because and here's the classic right. example is that he's against the evil ai that people like google are doing mm -hmm. so what's his retort to that i'm going to create my own company and create good ai right well, no all ai is bad it's mm -hmm. all about and it's always going to be used for evil even if the best intentions are for good but it's doing the same agenda from those poles apart positions to cattle herd us into a nexus point yeah it's still fallen angel technology that was widely blown open with yeah. john D john d 
I feel yeah. like John D is the mecca of a lot of this stuff as far as bringing it into the population. Not that yeah. it didn't exist before, but you know, the introduction of the Enochian alphabet and all this, when he was yeah. conjuring, he got so much information at that point that not that it didn't exist before, but it made it more, I guess, mainstream back in the day. Yes. It got, <laughs> it got, collect, it got yes. collected. And then yeah. was being redistributed in, in various sort of aspects. And what's important about John D, you know, he was, he's also, that's where 007 comes from. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he was a very important figure in the Queen Elizabeth court. Uh, yes. But his greater influence um, as an extension out of this occult knowledge is he mentored Francis Bacon. Mm-hmm. And he's actually the the coiner of uh, One World Order. I mean, people yeah. just miss on him. And I'm yeah. like, none of none of this would have came from anywhere else if it hadn't started there. I mean, it, eventually it, it trickled down, even though he was, I mean, an utter failure in his lifetime. That didn't really work out for him, you know, other than his mathematics. But they didn't take him serious until later as we often see but you're referring I mean, to john d yes how yes. they just kind of yeah. thought he was crazy yeah. because of the occultic stuff yeah. yeah well and he was a special ambassador of queen elizabeth there's yes. no way that that superficial history that were provided is accurate mm -hmm. um because they don't know they didn't want too much light put on them and just as francis bacon is always recreated in a different sort of light as well and he was the most powerful individual at the latter mm -hmm. half of uh queen elizabeth's reign and then when king james comes to power uh the yeah. mighty king james as he liked to call himself as of the unicorn dynasty um different rabbit hole but you know francis bacon he wrote the new atlantis which I think yes. what you were referring to, as well as many alchemical books, all of the mm -hmm. knowledge coming from John D, and that the New Atlantis is is where you have science coming back and merging with religion, as it was in Enochian mysticism and mm -hmm. at Babel, um, to be yes. the religion of the world in the end time. And the Atlantis is not a misplaced or an exaggerated term is what they actually believe because atlantis had 10 kings spawned by in in the in the mythos from plato and uh, Crataeus, uh poseidon marrying climbing to produce 10 giant kings to reign over atlantis which was the golden age and the mm -hmm. model that they were trying to create with the de development of the sciences and trying to conquer the whole world militarily um, mm -hmm. which brought on the flood. It's the violence part of the flood as you connect back and the knowledge that corrupted the earth or shakath, meaning decay, pervert, ruin, destroy for the plant genomes the and the DNA of all humans and starts to answer a lot more questions about the language of corrupt and violence when you understand the larger context. And this is the religion that's going to reign with these 10 kings that they want to bring back. So it's going to be like the days of Noah when mm -hmm. the angels walked amongst us, produced those spurious bloodlines. And it's the same number of the 10 kings that are talked about 10 kings, 10 horns, or 10 toes. Mm -hmm. Daniel 2, 7. Uh, let's throw eight in there as well as it talks about parts of that. Uh, Revelation 12, 13, and 17, where you get those 
uh, convergence of those numbers for the empire, the seventh empire of the last time that makes the way for Antichrist. And mm -hmm. it's the Club of Rome that answers into the Committee of 300 um, that is has separate that separated the world into 10 zones that they want to see this end time empire develop in and they were formed in the late 60s to, to speed this process up and they've been frustrated but again it's the, it's a similar mapping to what the un has used to split the world into 10 organizations and you have this you know this logo of the of the un with this laurel wreath over a flat earth and the meridians and longitudes that they created in the 1600s for their mapping of their world that they have legal tender over for a limited time. And the Laurel Reef is the crown that gods wore uh, in the time of Greek mythology and the, and the simple white cloth. So when you get into the Greek of, of a bow and a crown in Revelation 6, that crown is this Laurel Reef. Did you take that back to the Greek and the understanding that it was the same crown used for gods and for the awarding of athletes at their Olympic Games, which would have been Nephilim again, <laughs> or right, giant, right, just by <laughs> understanding the context of, of the scenario, and that um, the bow is not a weapon; it means a simple cloth, so a white cloth mm -hmm. of the gods. So you can expect that sort of imagery to uh, be part of what's coming for the seventh empire and the universal religion, just as you had the beast empires of old as part of having part of its hierarchy, the beast religion that comes from Babel, that comes from Enochian mysticism. And Babel is the root word for Babylon, for the Babylon religion that rides the empire of beasts in Revelation 17. Mm -hmm. And do you think that this is what the DNA tests are doing? Like they've, they've used these, do you think they're searching and separating us? With yeah, they're, they're looking for um, who's got the right DNA and, or mm -hmm. the right blood type and blood types can skip a generation. So it's the gene that you need to focus on because it makes the blood type and answers the question of how RH negative gets added to the bloodlines when it's missing the D antigen. I mean, it's not that, it's the gene. Uh, so I always was fascinated. This grandma I have here up on my wall was the whole reason why I ever even heard the word Nephilim. It was a joke at my house. This was my great grandma yeah. and she had O negative blood. And it was always a joke that she was a Nephilim and we, yeah. we would laugh about it, but I didn't really know what that meant. You yeah. know, as a child growing up, I knew it was a joke. I knew she couldn't have babies. Yeah. Um, normally she had like three or four babies die at stillbirth type yeah. situation, really horrible um, because it was before they had any drugs. knowledge of what to do. Yeah. yeah they they didn't really the drugs didn't to know. apply to, to, to overcome that. Yeah. Yep. And, and so the RH factor coming out in 1944 is fascinating to me yeah. that it took like, look, that's not that long ago. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's kind of frightening to know that there's something introduced into our, yeah. our society that has yep. changed something. And then and they've it, got the one, even uh, the null, the RH null yeah. above that, the yeah. golden blood. Yeah. yeah. And just kind of unique in itself as well. Yeah. yeah. Very strange. And what's interesting also about that RH negative is, is that, you know, 
the positive aspect is what gets killed by the RH negative aspect and that mm -hmm. in the occult, it's the gene of ISIS. There's the generic term, as I talk about in yes. book one uh, for all the different genses or the fairy gens or the elven gens is another term they like to use for it from the matriarchal allegory. Um, it is the one that carries the RH negative gene and passes it on. And so mm -hmm. that's why they start new dynasties uh, with a purebred uh, female uh, matched up with a dragon allegory, right. a patriarchal bloodline, but it's especially important for this pure blood. And we get an example of that in the Bible, actually. So Genesis 36, where you have the Horim, which are giants, and we know they're giants, and they're red-haired giants and, and, and uh, pale, and I go through the Horim in detail in book two. And uh, the Dukes of Edom are Horim, and for the most part, and they're going to, a seer is going to have a daughter named Timna. And Timna mm. marries Eliphaz, son of Esau, brother of Jacob. Uh, and right. this creates the Amalekite hybrids versus the Amalekim giants recorded in Genesis 14. And they're named from sort of eponymously from that tribe. They're going to go live amongst the Malachim at Petra. Uh, and the Malachim have some other locations to them as well, uh, as I document in book two. Um, and But within that, you get this royal bloodline that now has the Abrahamic bloodline in it. And what do they try and do? They try and wipe Israel from the face of the earth when they're coming out of Egypt. Why? Because then through that new let's call it a dragon hybrid bloodline but through the legal aspect of eliphaz you would inherit because there would be no more israel you would inherit, inherit all of the abrahamic covenants of the birthright the blessings and the magianic promise mm -hmm. and it's not the last time they tried to do that i think it's no. uh, interesting that people miss that hitler wasn't just looking at jewish people he was measuring eye teeth he was checking a lot of yes. things that were markers for the nephilim and yeah, the nephilim he bloodlines he would have over time expanded getting rid of inferior peoples and actually mm -hmm. had already started it um so yeah they take their Pan-Aryan Volkish ideology back to Tula or Thule, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of a Norse Atlantis. So it's either a cognate version um, or a different location. Uh, but it sounds like Atlantis where you had blonde haired, pale skin, blue eyed Aryans, Indo-Aryans. And there's five sort of groups after the flood, uh, which are the, the giants after the flood. And that they would were trying to backwards engineer uh, theoretically, and they knew if they could, so that if they could do that, they could create new giants going back to the race that had sort of been diluted and not as ennobled or, or royal as they would like it. And they were going forward with genetics to sort of dominate what was going to be produced within lands that they can carry, uh, that they controlled within those types of genes and, 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 and physical sort of attributes. So they're creating the new man 
They were wanting yes. to create the new Nephilim. Well, and it makes you wonder what they did, because I know this. I know that they have um, Henrietta Lacks DNA clear back from 1951 with the HeLa cells. And we know that they can store things. Obviously, they said that can procreate indefinitely on her cellular level. Now we're just talking about cells yep. here. But if we know that they have this kind of information and talking to Ali Siadatan, he was talking and I was talking to him about Diana of Ephesus. They figured this stuff out a long time ago. Like cloning is not this new thing that they figured out. That's a joke. Like no. they've known. Cloning yeah. and, and DNA manipulation was angelic technology from the past. Yes. And yes. that um, they, they need to create an Oikotarian uh, move, moving forward. And if people aren't familiar with that term, it's a Greek word that's used in the New Testament twice. There's lots of derivative words of it, but it's used specifically in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 for the house in heaven, and in Jude 1, 6 for the habitation that the angels left who committed the sins in the time of, of Noah. And that specifically means a dwelling place for the spirit. Right. And that's very, very important that the angels left their dwelling place for their spirit and came into the physical world. And you can be a spirit being in the physical world, but if you want to interact physically, and in this case to reproduce, to pass on your DNA, you have to create a soul and a body, which is part of this world, and the spirit comes from heaven. And right. so they would do that and they passed on the DNA and the gifts along with it, that including looks that uh, were their spurious offspring. And that we also need to understand that this counterfeit spirit, this Xerox spirit, is not as the first one was. And plus you're getting it put into a human body as well. So what they tried to do is create physical gods in the physical world that, you know, the body wouldn't die and you'd have this immortal counterfeit spirit. So in Genesis 6-3, that's why God limits life from the physical body aspect to 120 years. So you can't have that. There's a time limit on it. So the only way you can get around that is you have to create clone bodies or a new oikotarian. And for all of these disembodied spirits whose bodies died, who aren't in the pit prison, who aren't, you know, who come out and wander at times from Sheol or heaven on certain Holy Sabbath days of the occult, there's eight of them, um, and or are roaming the earth as demonic spirits, they need a physical body, an oikotarian to physically interact. So expect some sort of clone or a chimera type clone being um, mm -hmm. to be the oikotarian for these beings in, in the end time. And chimera comes out of Greek mythology where you have multiple different kinds of creatures grafted in. So they had DNA um capabilities that we're just catching up to and it starts to make sense of those chimera type of creatures in in revelation 9 with the riders as well um that you would be a chimera probably type creature in a clone uh you know in 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 this creation of this oikotarian that is going to be required for all of these disembodied spirits and those who come out of the pit prison immediately before and by an extension now have this technology in place for that oikotarian out of out of the pit prison in revelation 9 so you have fallen angels and you have the terrible ones coming out 
Plus, they'll create bodies for all of these demons that have been in different places since the beginning of the creation of the giants and the first one loses its body or is killed. And if we want to make sense of the end time and not be caught off guard, we need to sort of understand some of some of these concepts. So uh, this this understanding of this of these of the disembodied uh, giants is important. And because it was a counterfeit spirit, their spirit wasn't permitted into heaven. And it's not permitted to sleep. So when humans die, we go to sleep. Our soul and body turn to ashes in the earth. And only God and Jesus can separate the soul from the spirit that the spirit from heaven merges with. And then it goes back to heaven and it's still in a sleep-like state. So when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead... That means mm -hmm. he's bringing the spirit back and reanimating the body. In the Old Testament, where the sorcerer brings back the spirit of Samuel, which Samuel is totally upset. So there's powers to wake up the spirits of, of humans, um, mm -hmm. but they can't recreate the body. They don't have the technology there. And so one presumes Samuel goes back to sleep and back to heaven, but he rebukes Saul and the right. sorcerer is absolutely in fear because she didn't realize what was going on. And, and she yeah. knows she's in a lot of trouble. So we get this, we need to have this sort of understanding that uh, the part of the invisible ones include these demonic spirits versus the fallen angels who aren't in the abyss. There's a hierarchy there of both the visible ones and the invisible ones. And after that body dies, the demons, they answer to Satan. And we get that shown to us in, 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 in Jesus' time when he's exercising these demons from people. But it's right. a bad translation again, uh, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so we're told they're unclean spirits, which is a good translation. We're told that they are um, evil spirits, which is a good translation. But then we're told they're devils, and they're used interchangeably in these accounts as the same type of entity. Well, that word devil isn't diablos that's used for Satan and devil in Revelation 12. It's daemon, which is the Greek word and the source word for demon. And that's why they're wandering like in dry places. And the only way they can get a place of rest is in an oikotarian or in a house, mm. a, a, a home for the for the spirit. And they're like in dry places, right? So they mm. have to, the only way they can interact in a significant way physically is, is to have that oikotarian. I know that was a long rant. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. I actually enjoy it. And I think that it's important because um, some of the things they're doing to our bodies as we go forward into, you know, with AI or yeah. with, um, you know, transhumanism or even with certain things that we don't always know what they're doing. When you are yep. talking about, and I don't know how you feel about this, but mRNA, it, it's concerning to me as a nurse because I know something that it changes certain things in your actual DNA structure. Yep. And I'm not saying that that cure is, is 
the mark. I'm just saying sometimes I wonder what they're doing to possibly prepare a body for an acceptance of that. Yep. Maybe it will make it easier. And, you know, we have to look at these things and go, what's really going on? You know, yep. because it wasn't about a cure. <laughs> yeah. It didn't work. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> so, yeah, it's all developing the technology to create these oikotarians. And they're not looking in the end to have a human body. They want right. something that would reflect what they had in the past uh, mm -hmm. in a demigod type status. So size and other capabilities, just as the Raphaim, as you take that back to its Hebrew, you've got several in the lexicon of the Hebrew that show up as names, but they're rooted in one root word uh, that has two important extensions and then connects into those names. So you have a source word, you have all of these words that sort of derive from it. And the source word is 7495, Rafa as the singular, and Raphaim would be the plural. And that is the word for heal or mm -hmm. for medicine or for a doctor or, or terms like that. And so what's interesting about that is, is that um, the source words coming out of Rafa 7495 is 7496, which is for evil spirit, demon spirit, unclean spirit, right? So it gives you a larger meaning. And 7497 for giants and a tribe mm -hmm. of giants. And they all have a meaning. So if you go back to the Ugaritic texts again, the Rat yeah. Niam had the ability to heal themselves and to heal others. Right. And that's part of the name that they're that they were named after. And so so much so that you had to literally take the head off to mm. ensure that that body was going to stay dead because they had the ability to repair themselves. And so the story I like to relate is the classic example, and I provide more biblically in book two uh, from the Bible, is, is that when Goliath was going up against uh, David, David selected five smooth stones because there was five other giant kings of the five city pentapolis uh, of the Philistines that David thought he might have to kill that day. He didn't think he was going to miss. He had the power right. of God behind him. And he didn't settle for just killing him with that deadly shot to the forehead. And, and the sling was probably the most accurate, deadly weapon of that time, even though, you know, they have a lot of other powerful weapons. But for accuracy within the range, it was the most lethal weapon. So it would have killed Goliath, but he wanted to make sure he was going to stay dead. So he took Goliath's own sword and chopped his head off mm. in the execration text. The worst death you can have, that's the Egyptian execration text, when it's talking about hybrids and royales and these and the Anakim giants um, and other giants, is to have their heads taken off. Just as in Ezekiel mm. 32, these are the ones that are in the pit prison, the ones who had their heads cut off and went to that pit prison, because it doesn't permit them to go to where they want to go in the afterlife. They probably right. go directly to the pit prison. Oh, wow. Yeah, this whole thing about um, the Euphrates River, too, is kind of alarming. What do you think about that? It's getting kind of low, you know, it's almost. It is. Uh... It is. And I wouldn't get too excited about that yet. Most people are referring to as you get into Armageddon battle 
you have these four angels that are chained at the Euphrates. They're going to ensure that it's dried up so that the armies from the east can come. Well, that's in the last year of the last seven years. So there's also a lot of dams that are on the Euphrates River today. So and mm -hmm. they may be damming more than what they, they ought to be. But there is a passage uh, in the Bible that talks about how Euphrates, uh, in conjunction with all the other things that are probably going to cause drought situations with the catastrophes of the last seven years, and particularly the last three and a half years, is after the abomination, uh, when you have um, Judea flee to the wilderness in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and, and, and the book of Luke describes this, uh, because Antichrist has caused the abomination and they recognize that they've been deceived. They flee to the wilderness to be protected by God for three and a half years, as Revelation 12 describes this mid-term, uh, mid-last seven years event. And there's three and a half years where they're going to be protected. You have the dragon that's going to, as in the Satan, as he's described in the book of Revelation, it's going to spew a river to try and destroy him. And Antichrist is going to be trying to destroy Judah and the wake and lost tribes as well in the end time and likely by fire because of the references that there, Israel in Exodus is going to be saved from not only this overflowing river, uh, but also they're going to be able to walk through fire and safety as well in this great second Exodus that King David and Jehovah of the Elohim, the word of God is going to lead as the Jehovah of the Elohim uh, in the end time. And so you also you have this overflowing river that's causing a scourge on the Exodus that's recorded in Isaiah 43, Isaiah 27, and Isaiah 28. And I think with all of the war that's going on and the sun that's going to bake uh, the earth at that time, that all leads to the drying of the Euphrates at that time. So we're seeing what I would see a birth pang of what's going to be ultimately coming. Um, so one of the things I try and do is, is, is to ensure Christians don't get too far ahead of end time chronology because the catastrophes are all the same. So in what I mean by that is, is the sorrows that get stronger throughout the fig tree generation are earthquakes, are uh, pestilence, are famine and wars and rumors of war and or the surging of the sea, if you add in what's talking about in terms of uh, uh, what Luke is describing, uh, and these days of darkness that will, because of these catastrophes, will sort of get stronger. So 25% destruction to open up the last seven years, sort of circa around um, the last seven years in Revelation 6, where 25% of the earth is destroyed and humans. Right. Right. And then 33% in the trumpets. And then the wrath goals would be 100% because they want to destroy this world. And the DNA that they want to create for the Oikotarians, for their disembodied spirits, they're not interested in humans in the new world unless they're going to have them there just for labor or for sacrifice. Mm. And what's interesting about that is you match that up with Shiva as the destroyer god. Uh, connected to CERN, and that's another rabbit hole. But mm -hmm. oh, also, Baden yeah. and Apollyon <laughs> are destroyer gods. And the Shiva doctrine is this she is a destroyer god, but also a creator god. 
and it it recreates through destruction by fire to create a new world. And that's like the analogy of the phoenix that rises from the ashes, which mm -hmm. is the whole evolution of the counterfeit spirit into godhood that in this new world, they'll have physical bodies that live forever or replacement technology to provide that. And they'll live with their gods and they'll have a realm on their own away from God after the war that they fight. So they don't care whether they destroy the earth and they don't care that all the humans would be destroyed because that's what they were created to do when I talk about the giants. Right. Do you think that the giants there, that there are some now that are living underground? Do you think that? I think it's possible. Sure. Um, I can't prove it. Well, yeah. I would speculate. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And, that some uh, are, you know, living in a, like an under earth type of thing, yeah. you know, in all these situations. Uh, you know, in the earth, somehow, some way, in another right. dimension, could be in the earth, another dimension, yeah, off the earth, that. in stasis. Uh, with angelic technology, um, some sort of sarcophagus, sarcophagus type of technology, all, all is, is possible. You know, you have that survival of the uh, giant that's described in that Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Oh, account. yeah. Um, the Ga Gandar giant. Uh-huh. Yeah. The Gandar giant. And the yeah. descriptions are how you would describe these from the smell, size, the quickness, how powerful, how hard to kill. Uh, of original giant so it's either one mm -hmm. that was saved in stasis or in another dimension or, or recreated. popped up yeah <laughs> yeah the details are so strong or it's from such good inside information it's a terrific mm -hmm. hoax but the the details from the military side and from the giant understanding size is is just incredible and right. we also know within their mythos there are larger than human reptilians in the earth that's where they dwell mm -hmm. uh, but i don't think those are the giants they may be part of maybe some surviving giants typically those would be understood as the salamanders of the elemental class which are taller than humans and reptilian and also part of the alien mythos was part of the reptilians as well so i don't think they're because they're just not big enough to be the giants um, right but maybe they have recreated or um, had a surviving element, so to speak, of elementals. Right. Um, that rule this world, as they're talked about in the New Testament. Um, from it's like a modification, maybe. Maybe they saved some of the serpents before right. they were right. in the earth, off the earth, in the same way that they would have saved some giants if they were able to do that. Or... You know, they recreated all sorts of creatures like little people again after the flood. So maybe mm -hmm. they did the same with the Nahash somehow, some way, or some sort of DNA modification to, to create these salamanders. But these elementals in the occult are connected to the four elements of the earth. Mm -hmm. And they're part of the ruling body. They're part of the hierarchical order of visible ones. And with the visible ones, you know, whirling from... Mount Hermon, the Council of Gods, and the Seven Wandering Stars. Do you think that they've um, like messed with DNA to recreate, like with the orphan trains and these little premature babies at the fairs and this weird stuff? It, it makes you wonder when you hear about the new, like, oh, this is the new world, and then all of a sudden we've got 
if it was not that many kids, I would say, okay, just people died or whatever, but a quarter million kids popping out of nowhere. I mean, it kind of makes you wonder what they were doing over here. I don't know. Yeah, it's all, it's all part of it. It's all part of the development and reintroduction of the angelic technology that Mm -hmm. they're providing us, but we have to learn how to do it. So Mm -hmm. they're not just doing it for us. And again, because the fallen angels, they don't get blood on their hands. That's why they created Mm -hmm. all the various kinds of their offspring to do it for them. The angels are not the ones who slander God. It is the spurious offspring that does that for them because they know how powerful God is. And you could look at World War II and the Nazis again as Mm -hmm. a, a really good analogy for this and the complete end time. Um, as with an antichrist figure that introduces a universal religion with the Rice Church, which is Ariosophy, uh, pan Arian Volkish variation of Theosophy created by the Gnostics, mm-hmm. uh, to be the religion of Bacon was announcing that would reunite religion with its uh, home of uh, of the seven sciences uh, that mm-hmm. I talked about in, in book one. Um, and so you have this, uh, uh, kind of lost my train of thought there, what you we were talking about, sorry. Um, oh, I, about bringing in like kids, the kids to America, just as almost like an experiment to see if right. they could, we were talking you know? about, yeah, we were talking about the Nazis yeah. as the analogy. And so what mm-hmm. they said with all of this knowledge they had, with what they were working on with the new man and genetics, with what they were mm-hmm. working on with a single winged aircraft, what they're working on and developed with rocket engines and uh, jet engines and with this bell-shaped thing that was thought to be able to go interdimensionally. Um, Mm -hmm. That knowledge wasn't developed on their own. And they had no army, no money when Hitler came to power in 1933. But within less than a decade, he had all of this technology being developed. And they said it came from their spirit guides aliens, Mm -hmm. celestial white mafia, whatever you want to call these entities, they provided them the technology, but they had to do the work to develop it and, and perfect it. Well, just like Jack Parsons, I mean, he got the information he got doing some crazy stuff out in the desert. So, I mean, and people want to say that's wild, but look at what he created. I mean, we can talk about, you know, the Babylonian workings and all these different things that were happening there, but they forget he was uh, the proprietor of the rocket. I mean, like they forget, then where did he get that from? You know, that that's, it's just back to John D with that channeling that, that. Yeah. And at the adept level, they communicate with the invisible ones and particularly at the higher level ones. And so, yeah, this is all being downloaded in preparation to be like the days of Noah, both before yes. and after the flood, because Noah lived 350 years after the flood as well. And then I have a weird one for you, because I was a Mormon for so long. The things we do in the temple, um, the first time you go through for yourself, you get baptized for yourself, you do your endowments for yourself, this kind of stuff. It's kind of like Masonic rites. Yeah. but. The next time you go through and every time after that, you do it for dead people. And it, it's very necromantic, right? Yeah. Like, and, and I, 
Right. I traced it back and they will do it even for not just ancestors, but for anyone. They did Hitler's. They did Anne Frank's. They did Obama's mom. Like it doesn't matter who, but I traced it back to one thing. I kept coming up with the same thing over and over with Joseph Smith, the Mormons and the Mason stuff together with just the Masonic Mormons, not, yep. not all Masons yep. was a Braxis. And I wanted to get your feelings on that because it well, will go and back to that every time. Yeah. Everything in polytheism has a relationship back to the ancestors and particularly that they're not dead. They're disembodied spirits right. and you want to mm-hmm. make those connections. And those ancestors is, are where you fit in the whole hierarchy uh, in terms of the genealogy and how pure those bloodlines are um, in the DNA. So this is an occult ritual. As we talked mm-hmm. about in, you know, earlier in the show, our spirits go to sleep as humans. You yes. can't do anything to communicate with them. And anything that you're communicating with is demonic. Yeah, it's not them. <laughs> not them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a ritual of polytheism. Uh, that people don't know that they're participating in, which is very unfortunate. I know they teach very good values in the church and they do use the Bible um, to a certain degree, but it's the other things that sort of go along with it and the adept level of the church, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, so I look more at the adept level as the problem and not the followers. Yeah. Not, not the followers. No. Right. Right. Because I have wonderful in-laws and wonderful family that's still in and they don't know this stuff. They really don't. And and And, I say the same thing about most churches. I mean, it's the leadership and that goes Mm -hmm. right through to the Roman church. It's not Catholics that are the problem. It's the leadership. And it's always that way because they control it at the top to lead you Mm -hmm. away from God, to reinvent what the Bible says so that you don't really know and listen to their doctrines, not what's in the Bible, but to lead people away from God, to slander God eventually, to dismiss God and to honor their pantheon of gods. It all heads in that direction, just Mm -hmm. as the sciences do. Yeah, I agree. And what, what family in your opinion at this point in time would be the most I guess, influential in your opinion. I, it's only an opinion because I know there's a lot of them. But Yeah. In terms of an antichrist type figure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. what's going and, you know, it's going to lead into all kinds of things, but I don't want to keep you all day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's going to be, just... there's going to be multiple antichrists. So we need to be prepared for that and that they keep at least three ready to go in Europe all the time. And there's probably antichrist figures around the world from other bloodlines. But within mm-hmm. the Western bloodlines, um, I wouldn't pick one, but you know, you got to keep an eye on the Windsor Hanover uh, bloodline um, and with William more than Charles. Um, right. And could you easily adapt the name to I am out of William in terms of creating a mythos there? I'm not saying that that's going right. to happen, but uh, it's, interesting. it's a very, yeah. it's a very ennobled unicorn bloodline. Mm hmm. I knew about his shield. I knew about his um, coat of arms and the, yep. the yep. and then also the, the red dragon as the Prince of Wales. So it has a mm-hmm. and you and within that they have a pedigree that they take bloodlines back to Israel. Sion did from King Saul and King David, um, and allegedly, as we all know through some of their writings and fiction, uh, Jesus and uh, Mary Magdalene, which I absolutely dismiss. Right. I don't. But, I don't believe this. Yeah, yeah, yeah but exactly. I yeah. yeah. 
But anyways, uh, but I would not rule out the Anjou. Okay. Um, yeah. And what's interesting about the Anjou is that the current King of Jerusalem title is held by King Philippe of Spain of the Bourbon. Okay. And this, and he inherited from Juan Carlos, who inherited it from the Habsburg Lorraine dynasty that was passed on through the Lorraine um, Anjou kings of the Lorraine region, region, which was you know predominantly made up of De Payan, De Bouillon, and Anjou. And there's three branches of Anjou uh, that was crowned Baldwin the First Anjou of the Knights Templar in 1118 in a mm -hmm. small priory on the Rock of Sion. Um, yes. and so that's a strong bloodline yeah, and, you know, they have an order that is the Knights of the Golden Fleece, which is in Greek mythology, the fabric that was knitted into the clothes for the gods and the demigods. So their bodies wouldn't mm -hmm. decay to try and mm -hmm. prevent, uh, the 120 year lifespan. Um, and Queen Elizabeth had a major chair at the table of, the Knights of the Golden Fleece Order run by King Philippe or, and, and Juan Carlos before that. So King Charles would have there as well. There's two other rivals that make the claim, and I kind of cover it off in the intrigue of the King of Jerusalem bloodlines. And there's the Anjou of Naples, uh, the Savoy, that make a claim uh, for the King of Jerusalem title, and also the Von Habsburg, who... Uh, believe they have and it wasn't really transferred over to the Bourbon family through intermarriage and that they make a, a, a claim for that as well but there are many other families so yes. it doesn't have to come from those three right um, that's just four. keep your eyes peeled yeah just, <laughs> yeah so it yeah and and again there's going to be one that's going to rise that's going to look like the antichrist for sure that antichrist right. uses to complete his pedigree as the false messiah you know the replacement christ for uh for for christians in the world so and he has to you know have that in place before armageddon so there's a counterfeit armageddon that he takes credit for okay all right well that's awesome i i knew i could get some great answers from you because you study so much and i want anything else you wanted to tell me before um i i derailed you I'm sorry <laughs> yeah no no i think i was i was about there i mean okay yeah it's it's one of those things that let's not get ahead of chronology right uh, right we're in, it's I think fascinating we're in the regeneration yeah. but we're not into the last seven years yet so Right, right. Everything seems so sped up. And so um, we talk about this all the time, my husband and I, like the world is much different uh, now than when we were growing up, not just just how it feels. It's not about, you know, anything else or the technology or anything. It feels different. It feels faster. Just It faster. is happening faster. And mm -hmm. uh, but because those catastrophes are all the same, it's going to seem... Yes. And it's going to lead us astray on, on what actually is the true year, year of the Lord's wrath. So, um, you know, we know a generation can be 40 years as in the time in the wilderness. It can be 70 years as the book of Psalms or 120 years as Genesis 6-3. It really is what's the beginning. I think it's my speculation is with the taking of Jerusalem. Uh, uh, along with, as a, as a, also part of that is the southern kingdom has to be in control of Jerusalem. 
1967 would be, if I was to, and I do speculate on it, that that would be the start of it. And somewhere there, if it's 70 years, I think we're beyond the 40. We're looking in the 2030s, but if it's the 120 year generation, then still lots more things to happen. And before we even get to the last seven years, we have to have the universal religion. Mm-hmm. We have to have the seventh empire and that has to be in place to provide the ability to have Judah being protected in a peace agreement as part of the larger covenant and to begin doing the sacrifice again on a wing or an extremity or overspreading of the temple. And that is not going to happen until the Islamic issue is dealt with. And if it, right. if people think Islam is the universal religion, if they were to take over, they would never permit the Jewish people from doing a sacrifice anywhere near uh, the temple. Right, right. And I think we're going to see a lot more psyops, Project Bluebeam type stuff. Like they, yep. they're ramping everything up. And I think those of us that have eyes to see and ears to hear, hopefully see that and just yep. keep our eyes at God, keep our eyes fixed on God and pray. And I mean, really, we just got to arm ourselves with this kind of information. Yep. You know, this is wonderful that you've put your time and effort. And I know with these books and the volume of the book, not just the pages, but the information was really difficult. And I appreciate that so much because well, this was a labor for you, I'm sure. A labor of love. Yes. It was so yes. fun to do. So, right. And uh, I think people are, are, are going to like it. Uh, at least I hope that they like it. Um, yes. And it is totally unique. There is not another book like it on the market, just as book one was, I think, totally unique and yes. r- really started conversations that wasn't really talked about in the past. This is just as unique for Christians. And you have no idea, unless you look at my table of contents, how many types of giants there are talked about yes. in the Old Testament. And the angels, too. It's just amazing how you've broken everything down. And it's just, wow. No, I haven't seen one, but like on what I've heard so far, it just sounds amazing. So I I can't wait for it to come out. So this is going to be exciting. And if you'll send me everything, I'll put everything in the show notes where they can link to it automatically as well. So, and I would love to have you back anytime. I think this was great. And I had a great time with you and I appreciate your time. Awesome. So thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. You too.